The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. So yesterday was day two of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. Monday, day one was a full day of debate as to whether the Senate actually has the jurisdiction to try a former president. They decided, yes, we do, by a uh, 56 to 44 vote. Uh, So yesterday was sort of like the first real day with eight hours going to the prosecution. We saw all sorts of different presentations, including presentations with videos from um, the January 6th riots, some of which we'll review later. Video that was previously not seen, video that showed just how close of a call it was for a lot of members of the House and Senate avoiding these riotous, violent mobs incited by Donald Trump. And you would think that even though most Republicans have already prejudged this impeachment trial, most Republicans have already decided they're going to be voting to acquit regardless of what's going on. You might have thought that they'd have at least pretended to be paying attention, pretended to be weighing the presentations and making some kind of a decision based on the evidence that was there. But they had the benefit uh, that the cameras did not show the chamber at any time during the proceedings. The cameras, as we saw during yesterday's live streams and much of the media coverage, were uh, focused in quite tightly on the presenter, the various House impeachment managers who had uh, turns to speak yesterday, and we were left to rely on reports of uh, members of the media in the chamber to tell us what exactly were senators doing during what are very long days of presentations. And it turns out that many Republicans were engaged in everything from drawing doodles um, to sneaking in iPads as Chuck Grassley reportedly did in order to be able to read other material unclear exactly what it was while the presentations were going on. A business insider has a nice sort of compilation of different reports about this, uh, and they say that many senators were distracting themselves yesterday afternoon when the uh, Democratic uh, impeachment managers were laying out the case. Rand Paul, uh, who uh, at, at many points appeared to be the only person in the chamber not wearing a mask, he was doodling and according to one report, drew a picture of what appeared to be the Capitol, I guess, almost like architectural (laughs) drawings of some kind, according to reporters in the room. During a long stretch of the presentation, Rand Paul wasn't even in the room. But at one point when the proceedings went to a break, Rand Paul reportedly ran back in and gave a note to Trump's attorney, David Schoen. That's according to an ABC News reporter uh, named Allison Peckerin. A Cynthia Lummis, who's a Wyoming Republican, at certain points was not wearing a mask as well. Manu Raju reporting that Rand Paul wasn't even at his desk for much of the 1 p.m. hour. That was a key uh, hour of presentations from the House impeachment managers. NBC News was able to report that Senator Mike Braun was sleeping during certain parts of the presentation. This is not like they slept through metaphorically. Mike Braun was literally asleep during part of these presentations. Uh, Rick Scott at one point was looking at a map of what appeared to be Southeast Asia, unclear if he was catching up on the geopolitical implications of the borders in Asia or maybe figuring out where he wanted to go on an upcoming trip. A Senator Josh Hawley, who was one of the main players in voting against the certification of a number of different votes on January 6th, at one point was leaning back with his feet up on the back of a seat in front of him. Very risk. Remember when uh, Barack Obama put his feet up on the desk in the Oval Office and it was big scandal, almost as big a scandal as when he wore a tan suit or liked the wrong mustard. And Republicans said, you don't put your feet up in the in the Oval Office. Well, Senator Josh Hawley, with his feet up on the seat in front of him in the Senate, and uh, he appeared to be reading documents um, unrelated to the impeachment trial. And he said he was reading trial briefs. Um, So this is I mean, listen, um, if this were, you know, a lot of a lot of Republicans have been making the case that there's too much about this trial that's not happening the way a real trial would happen in a court of law. For example, many Republicans have taken issue with the fact that Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy was uh, is not only presiding over the impeachment trial, but will also be a juror in that he is one of the hundred votes on the conviction or acquittal of Donald Trump. 
And Senator Patrick Leahy also is, in a sense, a witness because he was there on January 6th. Now, the witness thing would apply to every single one of these senators since they were all there on January 6th. So that seems to be neither here nor there. But one of the other important differences between a, quote, real trial in a court of law and what's going on here is that if normal jurors were reading on iPads, sleeping reading documents related to other matters during a trial, they would be removed from a case and it could even potentially lead to a mistrial, depending on what the circumstances were in a normal jury. Many of the individuals would be disqualified, uh, not potentially because they were so-called witnesses, but because they were part of the alleged crime that took place. Uh, What I mean by that is that many of the senators that will be jurors Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley and others were actually part of the two month campaign of claiming that the election was stolen by Joe Biden from Donald Trump that led to the January 6th riots in the first place. They were essentially part of the conspiracy uh, with the defendant, in this case, Donald Trump. So there's a lot to sort through here, but I would hope that everybody would be able to see that sent reports of senators sleeping and senators sneaking in iPads and say, listen, that's not right. Even if they ultimately are going to vote to acquit, they should be paying attention. But unfortunately, there are lots of right wingers defending this, saying it's a kangaroo court. It's a sham. It's ridiculous. It's meaningless. It shouldn't even be happening. So good for these senators for literally sleeping through it. Um, It's stunning that this is what's going on. It's stunning that these are the hundred, 100 of the most powerful people in the United States, and some of them are napping, literally napping during the proceedings. We'll see today how it continues. Uh, I don't expect uh, Rand Paul to change his behavior. I don't expect Chuck Grassley to change his behavior. And we'll get into some of the meat of what was presented yesterday, which was truly stunning to see. We uh, predicted that the Southern District of New York prosecution, uh, a district attorney would be a thorn in the side of Donald Trump and his family long after he was out of office. That may still be the case, but it is Georgia that is jumping ahead very quickly and has launched a criminal investigation into Donald Trump's supposedly perfect phone call to Georgia officials saying that they need to find eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes for him. Yes, Donald Trump is under criminal investigation. It's happening even more quickly than some of us anticipated it might happen. The New York Times reporting that prosecutors in Georgia have started a criminal probe into Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the election results in Georgia, including that infamous phone call he made to Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. That's the call where Trump insisted, I only need 11,780 votes. What are we going to do? Help me out here. How can we find these votes? Uh, Fannie Willis, who is the uh, Democratic prosecutor in Fulton County, has now sent a letter to numerous officials in state government, including Brad Raffensperger, requesting that documents be preserved related to an investigation into attempts to influence the state's 2020 presidential election. So this is notable for a few different reasons. These notifications to preserve documents are typical when there is uh, an investigation that is taking place because this is a prosecutor in Fulton County. We know that this is a criminal investigation. That's what it is. That's what it means. That's what these prosecutors investigate. Now, the letter does not mention Donald Trump by name, um, but it is related to what Donald Trump did, trying to change the outcome of Georgia's election, insisting that these uh, uh, officials should simply find these votes, make it happen. And uh, a copy of this letter that was sent was obtained by The New York Times, and it really doesn't look good for Donald Trump. Now, the speculation is Trump's ultimately going to be charged with felony election fraud and that one of the really important um, things to understand is that when it comes to these statutes, Even if you fail to convince someone to do the thing you want them to do, it is still a crime. Uh, Quote, under Georgia law, it is illegal to falsify any records used in connection with an election or to place false entries in such records. And any person who solicits, requests, commands, 
importunes or otherwise attempts to cause the other person to falsify election fraud in the first degree, uh, to falsify voting records, is guilty of criminal solicitation to commit election fraud in the first degree. This is a felony offense. And much like with bribery, if you try to bribe someone and they don't accept the bribe, you're still guilty. Uh, If you I mean, listen, when we talk about attempted murder, just because you fail to kill someone doesn't mean you've committed no crime. And much the same way, even if you fail to induce fraud by asking someone, in this case, Brad Raffensperger, to find these eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes, you are still culpable, even if you don't get them to do the thing you're asking them to do. Imagine if Georgia ruins Donald Trump's life before New York does everyone expecting Southern District of New York to be the never ending thorn in Trump's side and Georgia jumping ahead very quickly. Now, from the standpoint of Trump's defense, the president, the former president is known for not paying bills of all kinds in real estate, not paying contractors that he hires to do windows or whatever it is he needs at different buildings Uh, as uh, president known for uh, not paying legal fees. Who's going to defend Donald Trump? And is it still worth it to them to do it simply to say you're defending the president, even if you're not going to get paid? Is it worth it for the notoriety? Is it worth it for the publicity and the PR? I don't know the answer, but it seems as though Donald Trump is going to need a lot, a lot of different lawyers over the next several years. This is just the start. And, uh, you know, I think from the standpoint of setting expectations, We know what the defense will be about fine 780, 11,780 votes. And we talked about this on the bonus show yesterday. Um, It is going to be Donald Trump wasn't asking someone to commit fraud. Donald Trump really believed this is what they'll say. We don't know if it's the truth. Donald Trump really believed he won in the state of Georgia. And what he was pointing out was it was only 11,780 votes of margin. And that what Trump was saying was, We don't need to fix every fraudulent vote. We just need to fix eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty. It will go to Donald Trump's mindset at the time. It will go to Donald Trump's beliefs at the time. I have no uh, delusion that this would be an easy case to prove. And I've had a number of lawyers email me about this reality similar similar to with perjury. Just because you said something untrue under oath doesn't mean it's necessarily perjury. You have to prove intent. And that's why it's very difficult to prove perjury. That's why you don't often see it prosecuted when incorrect statements are made under oath during trials. And the same complexity will come up here. That doesn't mean Trump won't need lawyers to defend him. He will. And the question of who is it going to be? I can't imagine it's going to be Bruce Castor. I don't think David Schoen would be interested in this one, nor nor do I think it's his specialty. So the next months and years are going to be very interesting. But for today, Yes, a criminal investigation apparently launched uh, by Georgia into Donald Trump's supposedly perfect phone call. That's his designation. Nobody else is calling it that. And we will see where that goes. Tell me what you expect in terms of these investigations, criminal, civil and otherwise. You can find me on Twitter at D The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Start your day and your new year off right with Just Egg, which is one of our sponsors. You've heard me talk about the importance of having a diet that is more heavily plant based than it's something I've done over the last few years. I've always loved eggs, so it's great that there is a delicious plant based version of egg with all the protein of egg that just egg brings with it. But it's made from mung beans, so it uses 98 percent less water and causes 93 percent fewer carbon emissions than a conventional egg. And just egg cooks and tastes exactly like a conventional egg. I've tried it for omelets, scrambled eggs, French toast, banana bread, pad thai, anything you'd normally use eggs for. And I actually think if I cooked something for a friend without telling them about just egg, they wouldn't even know the difference. Find it in the egg aisle at your grocery store on Amazon Prime now or on Instacart. And they also have a frozen version perfect for breakfast sandwiches. Just egg. Try it out. 
One of our sponsors is Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer owned company shipping super quality CBD directly from their farm to your door. They cut out the middleman, which saves you money and gets you the freshest possible product, which includes tinctures, flour, gummies, skin topicals, even CBD coffee, which I've really enjoyed. The whole team loves Sunset Lake CBD, especially their CBD oil and the gummies. We always say send us more. Every time we run out, CBD is reported as being useful for relieving stress, pain, inflammation. Some people use it before bed to help with sleep. And Sunset Lake is where you want to get your CBD because they pay employees a living wage. Their farm is sustainable. And of course, because they support progressive shows like ours, they're giving David Pakman show listeners 20% off when you go to davidpakman.com slash CBD and use the coupon code Pacman. That's coupon code P-A-K-M-A-N. You can find the URL in the podcast notes. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Remember that the David Pakman Show is primarily made possible by viewers and listeners who sign up for a membership at joinpacman.com. It's quick, it's easy, you get extra stuff every single day, and you can use the coupon code BETTER21 to get a discount off of the membership of your choice. Uh, sign up at joinpacman.com. Let's look at some interesting posts uh, that I saw this morning on the David Pakman Show subreddit, which you can find at davidpacman.com slash reddit more than... Uh, what is the number now? More than 28,000 viewers and listeners of the show now subscribed to the subreddit at davidpackman.com slash reddit. A lot of people writing to me after the first day of the Trump impeachment trial number two about the so-called Chewbacca defense after seeing attorney Bruce Castor rant for 50 minutes. Trump's attorney, Bruce Castor, rant for 50 minutes about vinyl records that his parents liked the political preferences of his parents, his friends in the Senate and what kind of relationships he has with them, a pre-revolutionary British law and all sorts of things that have nothing to do whatever with the impeachment trial. I got a bunch of emails from people saying, was that the Chewbacca defense? And Scrappy Doo posted this uh, to the subreddit saying, who believes that Bruce Castor was attempting to use the Chewbacca defense during yesterday's portion of former President Trump's impeachment trial um, and pointing out that Bruce Castor's speech was just random facts and irrelevant things to the actual defense of Donald Trump. And indeed, the Chewbacca defense is uh, a legal strategy. There's actually an entire wiki page about the Chewbacca defense. The Chewbacca defense is a legal strategy <clears throat> when a criminal lawyer just tries to confuse the jury instead of refuting the case. And the reason that this can work in criminal trials is we have this standard of uh, reasonable doubt. And if a defense attorney can introduce reasonable doubt, any kind of reasonable doubt, uh, then they are a significant step closer to securing an acquittal for their client. And so the idea of a Chewbacca defense would be a prosecution comes together and makes a case that's relevant and it's germane uh, to the facts and the complaint that is being adjudicated. And a defense attorney can introduce irrelevant facts, stories, confusion. And if you can get the jurors just saying, well, we had the case from the prosecution and then we had the case from the defense, even if the case from the defense was irrelevant and didn't make any sense, if it makes the jurors feel as though there's some kind of doubt as to what happened, even if it's because the defense lawyer was talking about Chewbacca, Star Wars, vinyl records and whatever, you can turn what might be a very good case for the prosecution uh, into a confusing enough case that maybe you get a juror to say, I think we've got to go with not guilty because I'm still even confused about what it is that took place. That's the that's the idea of the Chewbacca defense. Now, it shouldn't really apply um, to a Senate impeachment trial where the standards are different. It is not a criminal proceeding. It is a political proceeding. Uh, the jury is not you know, six or 12 of one's peers, it's 100 U.S. senators. So in any case, that's the backstory on the Chewbacca defense. And it is in practice. I don't know that Bruce Castor deliberately planned to go up there 
and do a Chewbacca defense, but it's ultimately what ended up taking place. Another interesting post on the subreddit this morning uh, about the second impeachment, where user HOHH231 said the second impeachment will be like the movie Groundhog Day. Same type of honestly presented facts by Democrats as in the first impeachment, followed by the same lame falsehoods and distractions by Republicans as in the first impeachment. Same disappointing results still needs to happen, though, and I hope I'm wrong about the results. Now, you know, in the first impeachment, I was saying pretty early Trump's not getting convicted, and we knew that because we knew that they weren't going to have the votes. Uh, You need 17 Republicans to say I'm going to vote to convict, and we thought there might be somewhere between one and four, and in the end, Mitt Romney voted to convict on one of the two counts. Uh, Much the same way, I know that people get mad at me when I say this, and they've been emailing me this week saying, David, why are you prejudging what's going on and saying there won't be a conviction? It's because we know that maybe there would be five, very optimistically, five or six Republicans that might vote to convict uh, on the single count in in question here in the current impeachment trial. But we just know Democrats don't have the numbers. We, we just know. I would love to be able to tell you that it's too early because every Republican is going in there planning to evaluate the case made by the impeachment managers and evaluate the case made by Donald Trump's attorneys and then going to decide by weighing the evidence. But that's not what they're going to do. We know that that's not what what they're going to do. And remember that 44 members of the Senate already said they don't even believe the Senate has the jurisdiction to do this trial. Do you think they're really open to voting to convict Donald Trump? Of course not. So I know some people don't like it, but it's the reality. And uh, Donald Trump will be acquitted. The question is, will he be acquitted uh, with any Republican votes going against him uh, or will he be acquitted with every Republican vote uh, in his favor? Remains to be seen. Join the discussion on the subreddit at davidpackmancom slash Reddit. We've been talking recently about the improving numbers when it comes to covid vaccine hesitancy some months ago, months ago at this point, almost a year back in May. Uh, we had somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of Americans hesitant about getting a coronavirus vaccine when it becomes available. Vaccines now are available. We have two vaccines available, a third one coming soon, maybe a fourth one coming soon. And the good news is that the vaccine uh, hesitancy has declined as far as the covid vaccine is concerned. It got down to 50 percent, 40 percent. Now, about one third of Americans say they definitely or probably will not get the covid vaccine, according to the latest poll. Now, it's good that the hesitancy has declined. But unfortunately, especially when you're not going to start vaccinating kids for some period of time in order to get herd immunity, particularly with these more uh, contagious variants, you need to have close to every adult in the United States vaccinated to get to herd immunity. So it's still a disaster that one third of Americans aren't interested. But this new poll did something interesting, which is it actually broke down uh, a variety of groups, political groups, racial groups uh, based on education level. And we have identified the most anti covid vaccine groups in the country. And three of these groups are Republicans, those without a college degree, and black Americans. These are three of the most anti vaccine groups in the United States uh, for different reasons, importantly, and and members of these different communities will have different reasons for telling you uh, why they are skeptical of the vaccine. Now, the reasons that people tend to cite as to why they don't plan to get the coronavirus vaccine include concerns about side effects, um, not trusting the vaccines from a safety standpoint and not believing that they need the vaccine, not trusting the government is another reason and not knowing that the vaccine, not believing that the vaccine is actually uh, effective. So let's look at um, some of the numbers here. Um, Black Americans are significantly less likely than white Americans to want the vaccine. Uh, 57 percent of black Americans say they want the vaccine compared to 68 percent of white Americans, Um, Hispanic Americans, very similar to white Americans in that uh, in that category. Now, this to some degree is probably related to uh, historical uh, um, uh, atrocities 
um, that uh, include medical experimentation uh, with black Americans. And a lot of my uh, black Facebook friends have been posting a lot about guys. While we understand the historical atrocities related to experimentation, uh, we need this vaccine. And what we don't want is for our community. This is not not me speaking, but some of my black friends on Facebook saying we don't want our community to end up disproportionately unvaccinated. That will continue uh, to perpetuate these um, unequal outcomes when it comes to vaccination. Uh, When it comes to education, Americans without college degrees, significantly more likely than college educated Americans to um, not want the vaccine. Forty percent of those without college degrees say no vaccine for me. Only 17 percent of those with college degrees say no vaccine for me. So that's not surprising. Lack of education and lack of just a real understanding of uh, how the vaccine works, et cetera makes perfect sense that the 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 less educated you are uh the less able to sort of parse the scientific data or even know where to get it that that makes perfect sense not surprising and then of course republicans more likely than democrats and independents not to want the vaccine and that one is pretty obvious uh, when you have had a party that from day one uh, led by donald trump starting in when when was it right january february um played down the risk of the vaccine of the uh, uh coronavirus um played up this idea of it's just the flu played up the idea of it's going away soon, played up the idea of that's that's in China, it's not going to go elsewhere. And of course, we know that all of those things were wrong. It makes sense that if you are part of the political party that that not only spread those ideas, but actually tried to use them um, to justify reelections. And that failed, at least for Donald Trump. It makes sense that you would be less likely to want the vaccine. Why would you need a vaccine against something that your party leaders have been telling you for a year now is really not that serious in the end. So completely unsurprising as far as that goes. Now, at some point, we have to uh, decide um, what are we going to do if a significant portion of the population never gets vaccinated? I do think that uh, various types of businesses saying if you want to go to concerts, we organize you'll have to have proof of vaccination. You don't have to get it. The government's not making you get it. We're not making you get it. We're just saying if you want to do business with us, a private business who organizes concerts or flies people around or whatever, you will have to choose to go and get the vaccine. I do think that that will have an impact, but there are lots of people who just aren't going to get it unless something significant changes. I don't know what that's going to be at this point in time. Um, And it's something we'll have to continue talking about. Let me know if you're surprised by any of these numbers, any of these groups that are the most vaccine hesitant. We'll have more about this on The David Pakman Show Instagram, which you can find at David Pakman Show. And while you're there, follow me on Instagram at david.pakman as well. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. One of our sponsors is Hydrant, which is a delicious fruit drink powder that you mix into water for rehydration. And they're giving you 25 percent off your first order. It's made with four key electrolytes that the body needs powerfully supporting your hydration. Hydrant tastes great. It's made with real fruit juice. It's been a great part of my daily routine for a while now. Keeping myself hydrated puts me in a better mood. The body needs hydration for basic energy and focus, and hydrant is the perfect way to rehydrate, especially because it's cost effective and lower in sugar compared to all of those popular sports drinks that are out there. You really have to try it for yourself to see what I mean. It tastes great. They also have a variety called hydrant immunity packed with vitamins A, B, C and D, which is also very much worth trying. Hydrant has a full refund guarantee if you're not satisfied and you'll get 25% off your first order when you go to drinkhydrant.com slash Pacman or enter the code Pacman at checkout. That's drink H Y D R A N T dot com slash P A K M A N coupon code Pacman. I've put the link in the podcast notes. If you are anything like me, you probably aren't thrilled with the idea of going into a doctor's office right now. And thankfully, there is a practical and affordable way to take control of your health and get personalized care. 
from the comfort of your home. It's a service called Steady MD. They're one of our sponsors. You take a quiz, you get matched with a licensed primary care physician who understands your health needs. You have a one hour video call with your new doctor. You establish a meaningful relationship with them. And after that, your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone or video chat. This is not a random doctor on call. Each doctor at Steady MD has a limited number of patients, so they actually have time to listen to you. You get the personal attention that you deserve. They can do almost everything an in-person doctor can do, perform medical evaluations, talk to you about health concerns, send prescriptions to your home or local pharmacy and anything they can't do online. They'll quickly set you up with an in-person provider to do things like blood tests. As an example, you don't need insurance. It's only ninety nine bucks a month with no other fees or copays. There are so many practical advantages to using steady MD for primary care. And it's also so much more affordable. Go to steadymd.com slash Pacman to take the free quiz and see which doctor is right for you. I took their quiz. They matched me with a doctor who specializes in my particular health needs. The doctor they gave me is a really perfect fit for me. Again, that's steadymd.com slash Pacman. There's no risk, no commitment to get started. That's S T E A D Y M D dot com forward slash P A K M A N. Welcome back to the David Pakman Show. It's great to welcome to the program today Michael Kinch, who is associate vice chancellor at Washington University in St. Louis and also author of Between Hope and Fear, which is a history of vaccines. Uh, it's so great to have you on today. Thanks for the opportunity. So we could start in so many different places, but let's let's maybe start with something that's a, a big topic of discussion right now. Um, we've seen sort of a different numbers stated about what the goal should be in terms of the percentage of of Americans or or of global citizens. But maybe we'll start with Americans that uh, need to be vaccinated in order for the U.S. to approximate what would be called herd immunity. And of course, there's a number of input factors that determine what this number should be. How contagious. Um, something is, uh, how effective the vaccines are and all of these other things. What's what are the sort of the most important things we should be thinking about now in terms of the variants, in terms of vaccine hesitancy, all of these different input factors for if there is this this one number that we should be looking at as as the sort of threshold? Yes. And herd immunity is a term that has actually been misidentified and misused, particularly by the previous administration. And in a nutshell, it's the likelihood that if you're someone who is susceptible, let's say you were a cancer patient who had chemotherapy that knocked down your immune system, what is the likelihood that you will encounter someone um, in your vicinity that might infect you? And that number for SARS-CoV-2, the current source of the pandemic, has been creeping upwards. It started at about 70%, and it looks like today it's probably between 80 and 85% in part because these new variants, the British variant and the South African variant, not to mention a Brazilian variant that hasn't gotten as much press, are far more communicative. So I think we need to be shooting for 85%. And from a realistic standpoint, that means that we need to have probably 90 to 95% of the population protected. Because again, some people will have had cancer therapy, uh, rheumatoid arthritis treatment, they're simply old, very old or very young, and they may be immunized, but the immunization may not take. And so we're going to have to go in excess of that 80 to 85 percent number in order to assure that we finally get this virus behind us. Now, this this may be a, a, a silly question, but I've not heard it addressed head on necessarily. When we talk about these numbers, I presume we're talking about the entire population. If you are not including people below a certain age, at least initially, don't we really need 100% of eligible adults because there are so many people under 18 or 16, which are the ages that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines respectively have been tested on? Don't we really need every adult vaccinated? We do. And um, essentially, again, that 85% number alone 
means that we need that. The vaccines are being tested in pediatric populations, but we don't have the data yet. Right. And so every adult, in order to protect your children and your grandchildren, really needs to be vaccinated soon. And as you mentioned, it's not just here in the U.S., it's around the world, because when you look at it, um, as we've seen, we have variants coming out of South Africa um, and other countries. And that means that someone in one country or a population in one country that decides not to be vaccinated could actually jeopardize the rest of the planet. On uh, on today's program, one of the things we looked at was uh, a new study that looked at the current level of vaccine hesitancy in the American population. The the good top line news is that the 60, 65 percent hesitancy of May 2020 has been reduced dramatically. It's that now down, according to this latest study, uh, about a third of the country. When you slice and dice different groups, three groups that are particularly or disproportionately vaccine hesitant when it comes to this uh, uh, vaccination are uh, among political lines, Republicans, among racial lines, black Americans, and among educational lines, uh, those without a college degree for different reasons. Uh, These three groups seem to be hesitant of the vaccine for different reasons. What historically have been some of the most effective ways to get more buy in to mass vaccination campaigns? I think there are two things. One is that we need to be 100% transparent, both in what we know and what we don't know. We're not here to sell a used car. We're here to get past the pandemic. And so I think that we need to convey when there is information that we don't know about, we need to convey that, but we also need to convey what we do know and we need to stop rumors. Um, There have been rumors that are completely unsubstantiated about causing lack of female fertility or lack of male fertility and many other things. But we also need to respect that there are certain populations of people, for example, uh, black Americans that were subjected, for example, to the Tuskegee experiments. Right. And that means that they're hesitant about many different uh, standardized medical procedures. And we need to then explain to them, here is what we know about it and why you're not being an experimental subject. But this is important. And that gets to the second thing we can do to minimize the anti-vax movement. And that is to people, it's been shown, will be more amenable to being vaccinated if someone that they knew was vaccinated Mm. and if it went well. And so the more that we get into those populations, the better it should turn out. The um, one of the uh, concerns I have, and I'm wondering whether you share it, is that there are many articles that from my perspective, are underselling the benefits of, uh, in particular, the two vaccines that are approved right now. And sometimes you will see maybe not headlines, but like sub headlines that will say, even when vaccinated, nobody can do anything differently. Everything has to remain the same for a very long time. And when you sometimes get into the details or look at the blogs of immunologists, as an example, you will actually see much more interesting information like, listen, there is going to be some risk no matter what, uh, but a small group of vaccinated adults 10 days past dose number two uh, is at very low risk to do an indoor gathering, in particular, if everybody works from home, you know, but more more sort of like meat on the bone about there really are some differences. And this is a game changer and it will be more of one as more people get vaccinated. Do you think my concern is is warranted about the underselling of the vaccines? It is, although, again, we don't want to come across to selling a used car. Right. But I think you look at it, these vaccines are truly miraculous. The the magnitude of efficacy and, frankly, safety as well is far beyond what any of us thought a year ago we would be able to achieve, especially within this time frame. And I would say it's better than the Apollo mission. That being said, we are underselling it. And I think that the proper way to address this, what you just mentioned, which is very valid, is to say, look, we don't yet know after you're vaccinated whether you might be able to communicate virus to others and we want to communicate to people the last thing that you want to do is to unintentionally infect your grandparents your children your grandchildren sure and so just to be safe let's keep up those safety measures until we have established herd immunity and let's be clear what herd immunity really means and i think most reasonable people will say, oh, if I'm protecting my neighbors by doing this, that that's a great reason to do it. Not that it's this onerous thing that we have to continue to do. You were talking about the Republican pushback to vaccination. This is simply a continuation of the denial that the pandemic was real, the denial that the masks effect, are effective. 
And we have to get past that and say, look, independent of what your political views are, here's what the science tells us. What uh, is the best way for someone to um, accurately sort of parse as you talk about so many rumors every single day? There's something the Moderna vaccine doesn't work against the South African variant. Oh, it does. But it just is more borderline in terms of the immunity versus being more robust against the UK variant. And oh, well, maybe that's not true. Uh, We need to get to one level of herd immunity versus another. And then the next day we find out, oh, the number is actually different For, for the average person, particularly people not like me who do this for a living, but people who have other jobs where they can't follow of this stuff necessarily that that closely. What's the best way to stay up on what the sort of top line realities are about cases, about deaths, about vaccination, treatment, et cetera? Well, now that the Centers for Disease Control uh, and Prevention is under capable hands again, I think that you can go back to trusting them. Frankly, this we had the best um, public health group on the planet until the, the this pandemic broke out and they lost a lot of their credibility. And I frankly was telling people, don't listen to CDC because they weren't giving the right information. But I would say if you had one go-to reliable place, it would be the CDC. Otherwise, don't Google. Um, go, for example, to Mayo Clinic or go to whatever your local hospital has to say. Look what they have to say. Um, Google and Twitter I mean, one of the amazing things is that if you look at the anti-vax movement, not just for this pandemic, but MMR and other vaccines, it is discomforting to know that about 85 to 90 percent of the tweets that are anti-vax are coming from Russian troll farms. Mm. And all they are doing is really undermining, and their intent is to undermine belief in authorities. And so I have not naive belief in authorities, but especially the CDC, it's turned itself around just in the past few weeks, still got a lot of room to make up. But go to the major universities, other places that are not making money or profiting in any way from this. For the most part, the pharma companies have actually been surprisingly transparent. There've been some exceptions and I've been a big critic of the exceptions and we need to be critics of the exceptions. And But I would say that, that most people so far have come together and been mostly responsible. When it comes to vaccines per day, when Joe Biden was just days from being sworn in, he was talking about a million a day for 100 days. Of course, at the time, the approved vaccines are are two doses, meaning you're talking about vaccinating 50 million people. We're now hopefully getting closer to the approval of the J&J vaccine, which will be a one dose. And then there's potentially more more vaccines coming Um, when when you're looking at this. I mean, it's it seems to me that with a third vaccine two and a half to three million doses a day total is is reasonable, which seems like it would be a major accomplishment. But we're still talking about months there in the best of cases until everybody can get vaccinated. What sort of numbers are you looking at? I mean, I think the the, the two key numbers to remember are 350 million Americans. Right. Which if we forget the J&J vaccine for a minute. That means 700 million doses, which is a lot. And this is a brand new technology. But then the other number is seven and a half billion humans, which then means 15 billion doses. And again, this isn't over until it's completely over. Now, I believe and hope that the J&J vaccine is likely to be approved based on on what we've seen. Right. Um, Its efficacy numbers are, again, very impressive. They're not quite up to the mRNA vaccine numbers, but at least it could get someone some transient protection, if you will. And, and future studies can determine, well, maybe someone who got one vaccine will need a boost of another. But I, the, the most remarkable thing about the vaccine numbers is not necessarily just the magnitude of efficacy, which is a, exceeding at this point 95%. And based on the Israeli study, it may be closer to 99.5%. Right. But it's the fact that the disease severity is greatly reduced and people, frankly, are not dying or getting severe disease. And that's where we want to be. If you're stuck with feeling bad for a few days or getting a cold, which most coronaviruses cause a cold, that's infinitely better than having to be intubated and, and Lord forbid, pass away or have your relatives do so. So I would say the big numbers now are we've got to ramp up production. The need now, the concern now is not anti-vax. The concern is manufacturing and making sure that the manufacturing quality still stays high. And that's where, again, FDA has been very consistent and fantastic about doing that. 
there have been some uh, some uh, preprints based in some cases almost on accidental circumstances that have surfaced, which suggest and again, I want to be careful to, to make clear that we're talking about something we're still learning about, which suggests that in some cases, if at the time that the second dose would be given, you just kept waiting, you would get a very close level of protection to what you get from the second dose plus seven to 14 days. Is that an interesting path that you think needs to be looked at in terms of, of possibly being able to expand the number of people inoculated with the vaccines we're expecting to have? If the data show it, um, I think that we, we run a risk. There was a there was discussion about giving everybody one shot. Right. And even if it falls outside the window uh, that was done in the clinical trials, um, giving them a later shot. We just frankly don't have the data to say whether that's useful or not. And the, the situation we don't want to end up in is that we give everyone one shot and one shot turns out to be insufficient and we have to start and turn around and, and begin afresh. Right. So now everyone needs to get two shots, even if you already had one. And we just don't, that we have to be guided by the data. Um, we The last administration was frustrating because they didn't seem to want to track any data. Um, and this administration, I think, is open to it, but there's going to be pressure to hit these artificial numbers. I would say 100 million in 100 days is great. All I care about is as many as can be safely done. That's the number we need to get. And hopefully that'll be well in excess of 100 million. No doubt about it. Yeah. And two million last Saturday and two million last Sunday certainly are, are great, uh, great, great numbers to start seeing. Uh, we've Absolutely. been speaking with Michael Kinch, author of Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines, also associate vice chancellor at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, such a pleasure having you on. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors, SNH Masks. SNH Masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for COVID-19, and they're giving my audience 20% off. SNH Masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell, and that's actually why I reached out to them about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year, like many of you. And I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient adjustable strap. They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackmancom slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. A lot of the shirts you see me wearing on YouTube are actually made by a company called Teddy Stratford. I love these shirts, and that's why I asked them to be a sponsor of the show. It really is the most innovative shirt you can buy because most slim fit button up shirts give you this weird stretched out gap in the chest where the buttons are. You don't get that with the Teddy Stratford shirts because all of their shirts come with a patented zipper hidden beneath the buttons, which prevents the chest from stretching apart like that. But most importantly, just overall, it makes the shirt fit much better and look better. The carefully designed shirt is also cut in a way that improves the look of your upper body physique. It has a really nice, elegant, close fit that other shirts don't really give you. It also has a specially designed collar that won't fall down and lay flat, which I love. The difference all around with these shirts really is noticeable. Go check them out at davidpackman.com slash Teddy. The link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 15 percent off your first order if you use the coupon code Pacman at checkout. That's P-A-K-M-A-N. The David Pacman Show at davidpackman.com. 
So as we've seen Donald Trump's second impeachment trial get into day two and then now into day three, there have been a lot of questions about just what has Donald Trump actually been doing these last few days and even the couple of weeks since he left office. And there's a very interesting new article in The Washington Post from Josh Dossie and Ashley Parker that tells the story of Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, doing a lot of golfing, not surprisingly, uh, doing a lot of just calling old friends and trying to reconnect with people. He reportedly continues to have um, many political aides on his payroll just around him, sycophants of sorts of different kinds. Uh, But this Washington Post article really tells the story of a a former president and former sort of big shot businessman, at least uh, at, at least to some degree whose world is really crumbling around him, increasingly isolated from most of, uh, the, of of popular culture, half the country or more disgusted with him, unwilling to patronize his businesses anymore. And while, as Josh Dossie uh, writes in The Washington Post, Trump is confident that he is going to be acquitted, uh, he is increasingly disturbed partially by the absolutely bizarre performance of his attorney, Bruce Castor, on Monday, uh, the free association uh, Rorschach test sort of thing that took place, which we covered yesterday. Uh, Trump disappointed in Bruce Castor's performance. Uh, Donald Trump also uh, reportedly um, not pleased in general with how Republicans have been uh, some Republicans have been responding to the evidence presented so far. And uh, Donald Trump is in this sort of bubble. And we know that Donald Trump was in a bubble while he was president of the United States. But he seems to sort of further be protecting himself with this bubble. Uh, and part of it, interestingly enough, is coming from the fact that Donald Trump is uh, banned from a lot of social media platforms. Were Donald Trump not banned from Twitter right now? He would be not only tweeting, but also spending more time on Twitter and maybe seeing that there are even many Republicans disgusted with Donald Trump's role in inciting the riots on January 6th. The fact that Donald Trump uh, has been removed from Twitter and a number of other platforms has placed him in what many people around him are saying it is a state of being adrift. No idea of what to do day to day, no idea of what comes next uh, and whether there is a future for Donald Trump's political life and business life. And I think this is another aspect that it just sort of remains to be seen. Like, does Donald Trump go back to doing real estate deals at this point? The one thing that has been mentioned by a number of sources that uh, Dossie and Parker cite in their Washington Post piece is that Donald Trump is calmer than was expected. He was reportedly screaming about Bruce Castor's terrible performance, but Trump seems relatively calm as he is adrift and unclear about what the future is of his business and political life. Uh, But Donald Trump reportedly furious with some Republicans, including Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who did vote to impeach Donald Trump in the House of Representatives, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who said Trump does have some responsibility for the attack on the Capitol, then ended up backtracking when those comments exploded. So the, the general sense here is that that this is a Trump uh, surrounded by the most extreme sycophants, because who else would be left at this point to even be around Donald Trump, given what's taken place off social media, partially because he's been kicked off, furious with the Republicans that he believes have abandoned him and unclear as to what the future of his life Uh, even is at this point in time. Now, one other interesting detail about Donald Trump during the impeachment trial and in the days leading up early on, you'll remember that a bunch of Donald Trump's uh, uh, lawyers for the second impeachment trial quit. It was, I guess, a week ago Sunday, not this past Sunday, but the previous one. Part of what we believe led to that is that Donald Trump was insisting to his first legal team that they defend Trump in the impeachment trial by arguing that Trump's claims about a stolen election were were true. This is sort of like a uh, an affirmative defense. Um, if you're accused of uh, killing someone and you're being charged with murder, one defense would be I didn't do it. I just I didn't kill anybody. An affirmative defense would be I did kill them, but it's not murder because it was self-defense. And what Donald Trump wanted was the affirmative defense of, okay, yeah, I did tell people to go to the Capitol and they were being inspired by me, but it was because I rightly identified that the election was stolen from me. Trump's initial 
uh, defense team reportedly thought that that was an absolutely terrible idea, uh, knowing Donald Trump's instinct for self-sabotage and inflicting, you know, unforced, unforced problems upon himself. Uh, they didn't go with that. And Donald Trump ultimately getting new lawyers. But that is not the case that is being made. And the case that we we have already seen previewed by Donald Trump's attorneys, Bruce Castor and David Schoen, and which we are going to continue to see uh, today and as the, def- the defense mounts um, are simply that Donald Trump didn't incite the riot period. And uh, that another source of isolation and fury and confusion from Donald Trump. So I don't know what the future of Donald Trump's life is. What I hope happens is that the country can move on from Trump. But at the same time, and we're going to talk about this on the Friday show, I do actually hope for the sake of the left that Donald Trump tries to start a third party because so many Republicans have said in in surveys that they'd be willing to abandon the Republican Party and follow Trump. Trump starting a third party could be exactly what the left needs to really make some progress over the next two, four, six, even eight years. So we'll be talking more about that on tomorrow's program. Hey, this is really it's either funny or depressing or horrifying. I guess it depends on your mood at the time, but it's definitely notable in the last two days of the Trump impeachment trial. Number two, we've seen stunning footage of what took place on January 6th, including plenty of previously unreleased footage, video of senators like Chuck Schumer and others being escorted out by security and just barely avoiding an angry Trumpist mob that in some cases you see a senator escorted out and then the mob comes by in the hallway just seconds after a senator was escorted out. And now It's undeniable the stunning reality of what took place. And we now know that there are some defenses that simply wouldn't hold. This wasn't really a big deal. No members of Congress were really under threat. Those defenses don't work anymore because we've seen all of the footage. But we are now starting to see some like Fox News propagandist Tucker Carlson shift to a different type of argument. And Tucker is shifting to You know, it's all so confusing. It's impossible to know what really happened on January 6th, but it definitely has to do with Black Lives Matter. What? I'm not kidding. Let's look at some video of Tucker Carlson's show discussing the subject matter presented during the Trump impeachment trial this week. And uh, he very quickly gets into, oh, we just we just don't know. It's impossible to know, but we're definitely being lied to. So what does all of this mean exactly? We're not sure what it means, and we're not going to speculate. We do know for certain that the known facts of what happened on January 6th deviate in very important ways from the story they are now telling us, including the story they told us today in the impeachment hearings. We don't know what it means, and we don't speculate, but what you're being told definitely isn't true. But wait, hold on, Tucker, wait a second. If you have no idea what happened, and it's impossible to know what really happened, How do you know that the videos and statements so far aren't true? And then you know what's coming. Let's take a look. And in many places, the known facts bear no resemblance to the story they're telling. They're just flat out lying. There's no question about that. The question is, why would they lie about this? For an answer, think back to last spring. Beginning of Memorial Day, BLM and their sponsors in corporate America completely changed this country. They changed this country more in five months than it had changed in the previous 50 years. So now it's we don't know what happened. It's impossible to know. But not only is Tucker sure that he's been lied to, he knows that to understand what happened on January 6th, we have to look at Black Lives Matter protests from nine months ago. What? I sometimes jokingly will talk about how one of the reasons why populist rhetoric can be so dangerous and deceptive and pernicious is that populist rhetoric on the left and right sounds very similar and you can fall into it. And then suddenly the solutions you get from these right wing so-called populists are crazy, like we have to make sure Black Lives Matter doesn't steal your house and we've got to stop brown people from coming into the United States. Tucker is actually doing it. He's not sure what happened on January 6th and he wants the people to know the truth. We, we can't have elites lying to us about what took, took place. And despite all of the video evidence and Trump inciting it, he doesn't know whether we can even really know what happened, but he's sure 
that what Black Lives Matter did eight, nine months ago, protesting the death of George Floyd, that's part of what happened. What? Let's continue. How'd they do that? They used the sad death of a man called George Floyd to upend our society. Months later, we learned that the story they told us about George Floyd's death was an utter lie. There was no physical evidence that George Floyd was murdered by a cop. The autopsy showed that George Floyd almost certainly died of a drug overdose, fentanyl. Now, Tucker mentions as an aside, George Floyd died of a drug overdose. That's not what's been determined. That's a lie. Tucker Carlson's lying to you. The truth is that the medical examiner's office ruled that the uh, manner of George Floyd's death was homicide. It was a homicide. The cause of death, according to the medical examiner, was what was described as, quote, cardiopulmonary arrest, complicating law enforcement, subdual restraint and neck compression. It did also mention conditions related to Floyd's death. Uh, arteriosclerotic and hypertensive heart disease. He was not a healthy guy from a cardiovascular standpoint, fentanyl intoxication and recent methamphetamine use. But Tucker is lying here. The medical examiner didn't say that what happened wasn't a homicide or that what happened wasn't related to what police officers did to George Floyd. He's lying to you while telling you that other people are lying to you. And that the January 6th riot, it's just too complicated to understand. Let's look at a little more. But by that point, facts didn't matter. It was too late. Cities had been destroyed along with the fabric of this country itself. Scores of people had been killed. Democratic partisans used a carefully concocted myth, a lie, to bum rush America into overturning the old order and handing them much more power. It worked flawlessly. So why wouldn't they do it again? And then uh, more and more lies. The George Floyd Floyd protests were important. They were significant. They received media attention. But what social or cultural order did they overturn? Billionaires continued to get richer and richer during an economic downturn and global pandemic. Wealth continued to concentrate at the top. Corporations are still in total control of American society and the economy. And we continue to see regulatory capture. What order did the protests overturn? Yeah, I mean, they raised awareness of issues. They created new activists. But what world order was upended? It didn't happen. And of course, not only is Tucker Carlson lying, he's lying to make you forget about the fact that he's saying, oh, that January 6th situation, we can't really know what happened. It's just too complicated. It's too difficult to know. But you're definitely being lied to. It's incredible and sad that this guy is a hero to so many people who unquestioningly believe everything he says, and it's going to get worse. We've we've predicted that right wing media is going to be off the rails for the next two years, and it's getting worse and worse. We have a voicemail number, which is two one nine two David P. I've gotten a lot of questions about I, I know that this is it sounds unbelievable, but the right now has a new date on which they believe Trump is going to come to power. The the conspiracy, right? They believe it's March 4th. Here's a viewer uh, asking about it. Uh, yes, David, this is Alan calling for Texas. And I've been reading a bunch of stuff online about March the 4th mm-hmm. being the day that QAnon believes Donald Trump will come back into power. Right. And it has to do with a law that changed the date when the inauguration of the president uh, yes. when it moved from March to January. That's exactly right. There are some QAnon types that are floating a pretty convoluted conspiracy theory, which says Trump is going to be re-inaugurated on March 4th <laughs> and he's going to be president of the United States. And what it, what this comes from is that before 1937, Presidents would be inaugurated on March 4th, and then it was changed by the 20th Amendment to January 20th. So there are QAnon types and sovereign citizen types and some of the fringe groups that talk about a deep state and all these different things. They are uh, claiming that on um, March 4th, 
under a restored republic that will go back to the sort of presidential timeline of presidents inaugurated on March 4th prior to 1937. Trump's going to be sworn in it, that, that I, I hope I'm doing justice to something completely crazy that doesn't even deserve justice being done. But that's my understanding of the theory. And it's not going to happen. We were told that by December 14th, Trump was going to be the uh, apparent winner, the president elect. We were told then by January 6th, it was going to be we were told that something would happen by January 20th. Joe Biden's president. Joe Biden will be president on March 4th and 5th and 6th and 7th and on. Uh, but yes, they, there's always something. And to be honest, I actually don't know if these uh, conspiracy theories are being created um, because there's money in it for somebody. Like, is there a financial incentive here where people are somehow monetizing these theories or is it really just people desperate not to accept reality? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, we will talk about the Dallas Mavericks uh, national anthem controversy on today's bonus show. We will talk about Joe Biden policy with China. We will talk about those stories and much more on today's bonus show. Get instant access by becoming a member at joinpacman.com. <laughs> 